And welcome to episode 168 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we will do our best to spare you our worst Italian accents for our review of Ridley Scott's biographical drama, House of Gucci. But first, how are you, Scott? Doing pretty well. Um, Thanksgiving was a riotous time, one of which was, of course, watching House of Gucci with the gang. Uh, at the AMC Chattanooga 18. What'd you say? I said Gucci Gang. The yeah, sure, Gucci Gang. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that and that was that was a, a time. That was certainly a time, uh, wild as it as it was to follow uh, the Gucci family along that journey. You know, made my way back up to New York, and we both haven't been feeling super great since getting back. Although you more so than I, certainly. Um, but you know, we're powering through. I just ran back from seeing a movie, which I guess I could I could talk about later on in the podcast. It is a bit of a starved news week, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's crazy times, and you know, tis the season of exposing ourselves to more and more people, and the fact that we've been mostly, you know, I, I won't say sheltering in place, but not interacting as much with other people over the last year and a half. I think is probably coming back around to uh, to kick our immune systems in the butt, even in a non COVID way. Yeah, I will just apologize to our listeners in advance that uh, I don't think either one of us probably is going to be bringing the energy of the performers <laughs> in House of Gucci uh, on this, certainly not on this podcast. Um, but well, maybe yeah, Adam Driver level. I don't know. Yeah, that that is true. He's definitely the most restrained of all of them, I would say. But you know, we'll we'll get into that. Yeah, Scott, it was it was a great holiday weekend until it wasn't, uh, which was you know last night around. 8 p.m. or so and just got hit with some sort of pretty nasty stomach virus. My mom has the same thing. Um, it's definitely put me out of commission for the last 24 hours or so. I'm, I'm, I'm getting back in, you know, track on, on track with, you know, healing up, but um, definitely feeling the fatigue of not having slept a whole lot last night. Um, but, you know, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, as far as, you know, we've been through a public health crisis over the past uh, almost two years now. And, um, you know, I've managed to, to stay clear of it for the most part. So it was bound to catch up with us eventually, I guess. Yeah, I remember the first time I, I flew again, I got like some sort of stomach related thing, too. And it was gone in like, you know, two or three days. And it wasn't it knocked me out completely. But like well this is the price i paid for like not interacting with humans for a year and a half yeah yeah that that is that is probably the case but um yeah these the stomach stomach flu and food poisoning and all that kind of stuff like it it goes quick but while you have it it you know you feel close to death i would say um, oh yeah is how i would sum up um how I felt the one time I had food poisoning a few years ago when I was in Scotland actually was that's, that is the worst I've ever felt in my entire life. Um, probably like literally could not even move just lay, lying on the bed, like sprawled mm -hmm. out. But, um, I don't think anyone wants to hear about that probably. Um, 
what they do want to hear about uh, is our our film today, Scott, which, as mentioned, is the second 2021 film from Oscar-nominated director Ridley Scott, House of Gucci. House of Gucci opens in Italy in 1978, where a young woman named Patrizia Reggiani, played by Lady, Lady Gaga, is working as an office manager for her family's trucking business. At a party, Patrizia happens to meet Maurizio Gucci, played by Adam Driver, a law student and heir to a 50% stake in the Gucci fashion empire, a stake currently owned by his father, or by his aging father, Rudolfo, played by Jeremy Irons. Patrizia aggressively pursues Maurizio, and soon the two are married, much to the disapproval of Rudolfo. But Maurizio and Patrizia find an ally in Rudolfo's brother, Aldo, played by Al Pacino who owns the other half interest in Gucci. And when Rodolfo dies, Aldo and Maurizio, with more than a little help from Patrizia, set their sights on world domination with the Gucci name. But this is only the beginning of Scott's 160-minute epic of greed, power, and even murder. And when the dust settles, no one with the Gucci name will remain untouched. Scott, does Ridley Scott make it two for two this year with a film that earns its length and Oscar buzz, or is House of Gucci a bloated misfire that leans too heavily on its campy side to leave an impact? I think a little bit in the middle for me, to be honest. I think it's a very watchable movie. And it certainly has plenty of camp to entertain, as well as the sort of, I don't know, epic arc, you might say, that might come, that, that you kind of expect at some point almost with the Ridley Scott film. Like, I mean, I know he's made non-epics before, films before but it just feels like he has this epic bend to everything that he does certainly this year it's not to also have the last duel in mind which i think we talked about less than two months ago on the podcast i don't think this quite is as good as that personally um i do have some qualms to talk about you know maybe maybe one of the biggest ones for me is that in spite of having sort of epic bend to its narrative Something about this film just like doesn't feel particularly epic. I think that's just sort of kind of what I've settled on looking back on it. You know, a few days are moved now. It's 160 minutes, but, you know, unlike other epic films this year, like The Last Duel, like Dune. And, like, certainly we know a lot of years passed by the end of the movie, but I'm not really sure what there, there's as much show for it as I think I would wanted or hoped for. Not every film has to be this really grand, heavy epic, of course, but something about it, I think, just left it feeling like empty calories, but not necessarily in a positive way. Um, but I still liked the movie on the whole. I think the performances are very committed. Um, some certainly more on the campy side than others, but even Adam Driver, who you said is restrained, and I would 100% agree with that, I still feel like he is fully committed uh, to his performance, and I think coming back after a year off of 2020 and with these roles that he's had in 2021 between this, the last duel, maybe I'm forgetting another one. If he's had another one, Annette. he's just consistent. Oh yeah. Annette. I haven't seen Annette to be fair, but he's just consistently, I feel like just one of the most reliable performers in Hollywood. Um, certainly in, of, you know, a middle or younger age. And it's just really remarkable. I think what he's capable of. And unfortunately he's like, plastered on a wall next to a bunch of these just like incredibly over the top performances which you know we'll talk about how much our mileage might vary on some of those but it is an interesting juxtaposition and i think one that works actually for a good bit of the time although i think maybe it loses its way a little bit towards the end which again 
think goes back to sort of maybe the central issue I had uh, around it sort of not feeling like it had done enough at the end of, at the end of its runtime. But enjoyable. It was a lot of fun um, to see this movie with people um, and then talk about it afterwards, you know, going to a bar afterwards and talking about it. Um, if that is the environment in which you will watch this movie, I'd strongly recommend it. You know, if you're venturing out to see this movie by yourself, 160 minutes, you know, just know what you're getting yourself into. I think it's a long film. It won't be the first long movie we talk about this year or the last one, but it is a long movie. Um, and I was feeling it's runtime, I think, by the end. Yeah, I mean, Ridley Scott, I think, just really shows off his blockbuster mainstream chops with how engaging this movie is at uh, 160 minutes. I mean, in The Last Duel was the same way, although a very different film. I, I think, you know, he deserves credit more than anyone for both of these films, um, you know, seeming a lot less than their runtime, I guess, or, you know, re remaining highly engaging throughout their lengthy run, run times, because obviously, you know, we have conversations more and more often nowadays, it seems like about run times and everything being, you know, two and a half hours or longer, and you know, movies recently, no time to die yeah. and Eternals come to mind uh, are ones that I do not feel like are necessarily earned their length. Um, I do think this movie earns its length, even though it's not perfect. Um, and I do, I do agree with you that I do think the last duel is definitely the better film of the two. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's highly watchable. I, uh, you know, when the first trailers came out for this, it was clear that uh, choices were being made, I guess we should say, as far as the accents um, in particular and, you know, just sort of the general vibe you got from that. I mean, you have Lady Gaga, you have Al Pacino, you have uh, Jared Leto, you have actors who can go over the top, right? Um, I mean, Lady Gaga maybe hasn't done it in her films, but certainly when you look her at personality her personality is, yeah. And, and her, you know, on stage persona as a performer. Um, yeah, you know, that's what I mean. Certainly very over the top campy at times. Um, so my wish for this movie was let's just, just lean into it, right? Just have fun with it. Just make a silly, um, you know, sexy fashion romp or whatever. Um, so you don't associate basically. that with 160 minutes, though. That, that's my thing. It's like you're making a silly yeah. romp, but it's two hours and 40 minutes. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I, I totally, totally hear that. I, I wanted just like an epic soap opera of a movie, yeah. I guess is what I'm saying. And I think we mostly got that. Um, yeah. I actually think that the pacing is a little bit weird in places. At And that again, that's not to say that I think it's too long. I think people often will complain about pacing in movies without basically just for their way of saying oh this movie it's was long. too long yeah yeah um which is not really the same thing i think we're jumping around in time yeah quite a lot in the movie without the any end. real yeah without any real indicators of how much time we are jumping around um you know what's gone on in the interim um it, it does feel a little bit jarring and abrupt sometimes um you know maybe how long we spend in certain time periods and then you know all of a sudden we're skipping ahead six years which i think is what happens at the end um so i do feel like i mean look i i get it it's a yeah there's a lot to this story even even in a two hour and 40 minute film you can't get to everything that's probably you know the best argument for the people who are like oh well this should have been a mini series um yeah 
Which, yeah, I mean, it probably could have been a good miniseries. I don't know. I just I feel like that's that kind of comment is overused nowadays. Um, when it well, comes, it's, to, it's easy to, to overuse it when every every other week is a hundred and fifty to hundred sixty minute movie. Yeah, and I mean, prestige miniseries are bigger than they have ever been um, yeah, nowadays true. as well. So um, I think the, both of those things play into it. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't think that that's always uh, a perceptive comment. But sure. I do, th- I, I, I definitely do see how this story could lend itself well to a miniseries. I mean, Ryan Murphy did something very similar recently with um, the assassination of Gianni Versace, another sort of tale about a fashion empire that involves murder and, you know, was kind of this big epic crime story as well. So um, it's crazy know, that that's like four or five years ago now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because there's now a whole other season of American Crime Story that has just come out in the last year. But yeah, um, yeah. but yeah, no. Uh, so I mean, I definitely enjoyed the movie um, quite a bit. Um, just as as an entertainment, I don't know that it has a ton to say. But again, I don't know that I was really looking for it to say that much. I wanted it to be a an entertaining spectacle, and I think it delivers on that. I think the performances are all mostly good and pitched at the right level like i said from what i wanted uh from this movie like if you're going to do those accents just go over the top of it um it, it's it's except fine. for the um, except for the couple scenes where they forgot about their accents Whoops. yes that it does happen um it, it definitely does happen and you know as people have pointed out lady gaga's accent is almost more russian than it is italian yes um, i was thinking that too when i was watching it's but just, it, this is to this point and we can drop the accent part after this mm-hmm. I just I find it very and th- this speaks to your point and this isn't like a judgment on the film frankly it's just like it's so weird to have the last duel like a month and a half before this which is set in France with French people no accents whatsoever <laughs> and then a month and a half later you have House of Gucci set in Italy over the top <laughs> Italian accents yeah from the same director <laughs> like well uh, choices yeah, I, as I, you said Choice is definitely, but I do think, um, you know, if The Last Duel had had these crazy accents, I think it would have been a much worse film, and we would have been talking about that, probably cheapening the the subject matter of The Last Duel, which obviously doesn't need to be cheapened. Why are um, we cheapening murder, Scott? Murder <laughs> happened in the story. Well, I, I think that this story lends itself better to this sort of yes. approach. Um, and, you know, again, I think that's that's Ridley Scott, right? Like, he... he uh, he understands, I think, what type of film each of these stories are are calling for. So e- even though, you know, they were both these sort of epic historical dramas that he made, sure. yeah. um, you know, the movies couldn't be more different, but both of them are very well-made films, I think. So that, yeah. I think a lot of credit goes towards, towards the director there. But Scott, let's talk about the performances in uh, House of Gucci because, you know, sure. we're... The, the cast has quite a lot of hardware to its name. Uh, you know, you have Oscar-nominated actors, uh, Lady Gaga and Adam Driver, who are probably the two leads here as Patrizia and Maurizio Gucci. What do you think about their performances? Look, I, I, I sort of gave my spiel already about Adam Driver, so I don't want to be too repetitive, but I think he's really solid. It And again, he's being sort of juxtaposed against these more campy feel of performances. Although that I think more, more comes from the supporting cast. I think Lady Gaga is like, if, if it's the right way to, it's, it's sort of the Goldilocks, if you will. 
of like there is some camp and there is some very there is a lot of sincerity to the performance as well um the over the topness is sort of used to accentuate more restrained moments as well to to sort of pair them side by side i mean never yeah, i think at this point it's like almost viral the whole ad-libbing of father son house of gucci or and whatnot um but at the same time you know for all of those sort of one-liners they throw in the trailer it feels like there's a lot of moments too that are you know she's that are that are less campy and more just sort of like soapy dramatic you know melodramatic um moments of her trying to worm her way into the gucci family um and there is some camp involved with that especially in her interactions with some of the family members but there's a lot of um almost more down down the middle dramatic fare to it as well um so i i liked both of the performances i thought they were good i don't expect either of them to be in the conversation for performances of the year and whatnot uh you can correct me if i'm wrong about that in terms of how you're feeling but they're they're solid i, I don't think there's really anything to complain about either of these performances yeah no, no probably not in my conversation i do think that lady gaga will definitely have some oscar buzz for this you think you think uh, so i i just feel like I do. people are laughing too much at it for it to be serious yeah maybe maybe so i mean uh i wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me i i do think she still has some some buzz right now um at least yeah. from what i have looked at but yeah um yeah i think they're both good in the movie as well um yeah i, I mean adam adam driver is still on the the wavelength of the movie even if he is he is giving it less and i mean i think well it's, think, it's because his character know, is so different exactly than everyone that's, else that's what i was yeah. going to say right like yeah. he isn't really he's not really interested in this world it's a very michael corleone-esque character in a way um like he's not really interested in this whole you know world that his his father and his uncle and you know this world of high fashion and everything he's kind of an awkward guy when we first um you know see him and that at that party um Very he much. doesn't really he, he doesn't he can't quite believe that any woman would really take an interest in him it seems like um and uh and so yeah i think i think he he gets that part of it it right um and it's lady gaga it's patricia who really sort of pulls him into this world and um, you know, dad, towards the the eventual turmoil that breaks out. Um, you know, especially in the third third act of the movie, and I think she, yeah, she's she gives a strong performance as well because, you know, she has she has a lot of like charisma. Like, you know, that there's a, there's that scene where they go to to lunch early on with with uh, Jeremy Irons. Yeah, yeah, and. You know, if you look back at the hit production history of this movie, like Margot Robbie was going to play this role at one point. Can, yeah, can, Wong can, Kar you, can you imagine Wong Kar Wai directing yeah. Margot Robbie in this movie? Like crazy. I think Angelina Jolie was um, was also in and the mix Leo. at one point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as far as this character goes, like I think they they probably got it right because, yeah, I, I don't think I think Lady Gaga is believable as a. You know, I, I work in my parents' trucking business or whatever. Whereas if you saw if you saw uh, Margot Robbie um, or Angelina Jolie walk in there, yeah, okay, you know, maybe they say she's the she works for her parents' trucking business. But if I'm Jeremy Irons, I'm still going to be looking at Angelina Jolie and Margot Robbie and be like, 
all right, well, this presents a good image, right? Um, so, I mean, that's not to say anything about Lady Gaga, like, you know, but I, I think I she's able to disappear role. into the role better, probably. Yes, she doesn't. She doesn't necessarily have the like full on movie star, like completely glamorous, glossed over look where I don't, you know, I, I feel like it, she would struggle to portray like this real middle class person. Um, I, I think they probably ultimately got the, the right person for the role, but she still has that that charisma, right? Whatever, you know, whatever she has not really had in life that um, Maurizio has had, obviously, with his wealth and family and everything. She knows what she wants. She knows that she wants that, and she knows how to go about getting it. Um, and she has a strong personality, which uh, maintains, which which is, you know, is consistent, stays consistent, remains consistent over the course of the movie. Um, and, again, you understand, you believe, uh, that this woman could kind of take over almost in a way when, you know, when they're at sort of the height of, of their marriage, you know, she's kind of the one pulling the strings really um, behind all of this. And I think there's a nice ambiguity to her performance too about like, you know, again, uh, early on, there's a conversation between Adam Driver and Jeremy Irons where he's like, where Jeremy Irons is like, oh, well, she's only interested in you for the money. And I don't think we really know, you know, what was her ultimate, you know, does she actually have feelings about for him from the beginning? Or, you know, does she hear that Gucci name and think, here we go, this is my chance to, like, get into this world that I want to be a part of? Um, you think it was ambiguous? I thought it was pretty clearly on one side. Well, yeah, if I had to, if I had to choose, I think I would uh, probably say the latter, right? That she, you know she hears that name right like it seems like that's a that's a trigger when she's at that party you know she hears that name gucci and all of a sudden it's like oh hey i mean she's you know very aggressively seeking him out and everything yeah and she comes uh, on to him pretty strong like even after like following him yeah. to the library or whatever maybe not super ambiguous in retrospect but um you know i mean there's there's nice moments in their relationship too where they just seem like a you know, a, a couple getting along who like actually does have feelings for each other, um, sure. especially early on. I don't mean uh, to say that, that she doesn't have feelings for him. I just mean to say that gun to her head, if she's choosing her husband or the Gucci name, she's choosing the yeah. Gucci name. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that is probably true. I mean, ultimately, that is the choice that she makes right at the end of the movie, basically. Um, and she kind of chooses the the Gucci name in a way. But um but yeah, so I think I think they're both both strong in the movie. Uh, Scott's supporting cast. We have a host of Oscar winners here. I've mentioned Jeremy Irons, Al Pacino, Jared Leto, who plays uh, the son of Al Pacino's character, Paolo, who's kind of this. I think you mean Mario, Scott. He plays Mario. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of this bumbling wannabe designer who just doesn't really have the talent that the rest of his family or the eye that the rest of his family does, and he's just kind of the the black sheep of the family um but of course he still he still ha holds this interest by virtue of being the son of aldo and so you know he does play an important role in the plot and all the business machinations that eventually go on with the ownership of gucci um those are probably the the main performance performances jack houston um shows up camille cotton sama hayek yep yeah. uh sama hayek plays like this sort of tv like 
mystic type person who uh that's probably the nicest know, way you could have put that to be honest yeah becomes friends charlatan probably would have been a more uh accurate one but becomes friends with lady gaga's character particularly in the later part of the movie camille cotton plays um a, a woman a, an old friend of um of Maurizio's who comes into the picture again later on in the movie um who do you want to highlight here scott yeah, I guess for me, it's got to be it's got to be the the elder statesman of of the family. I think it's Al Pacino and Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons' role is probably smaller just in the film, much much less of the time, uh, just by the nature of the life of good of Rodolfo. But he really, I think he really makes the most of those scenes and and does leave an impression and an impact on the audience for the particular character he sort of i don't know puts on uh to to say the least i mean yeah just i i just i i can't help but just say it's like quite memorable the look the way he holds himself something which is like not unique to this role right like he is he's always been the kind of person who can portray this type of like very elitist snobbish um no nobility almost um i think he has that vibe of him quite quite well he has the vibe of that quite well and he puts it on full display here al pacino more campy um jeremy irons you could say maybe definitely has some camp in the performance but in a way that is i don't know just it feels less over the top when you get al pacino and you have these you know very emotional hand like you know gesticular performance of hand waving and yelling and frustration and it just seems like Rodolfo is a not necessarily restrained in the performance, but restrained in personality a little bit more like his son, I suppose, um, compared to Al Pacino and Jared Leto. Uh, but yeah, I liked Al Pacino as well, especially if you're going to compare him and, and Jared Leto. I just think that, I don't know, he's less of a, I just found Jared Leto to be a little bit of a distraction in the movie a lot of the time. Um, and Al Pacino felt like he more, nailed the vibe of the movie but also fit the movie whereas jared leto felt like he nailed the vibe of the movie but then like took it too far and distract i think distracted from from the point of a lot of what was going on around him in in many cases but yeah i think those are the two performances i would shout out yeah i mean jared leto's performance will be very divisive it has already been divisive just because he does dial it up to 11 you know, I feel like he dials it up to 11 in a lot of movies, though, and in a lot of movies where that is not the level that the rest of the movie is on. Um, so I frankly didn't mind the performance, especially with this character um, being who he is, right? Like he is this sort of black sheep. He's kind of the, the person who um, the rest of the family is kind of embarrassed of, Um so I don't mind him, you know, going on these fully committed rants of, oh, it's the, I, I want to soar like the pigeons and, um, you know, just just the he, he leans into the accent, you know, more than than anyone. He plays around with his voice a lot, you know, goes into a high register a lot of times. Um, he really he really does go full on like stereotypical um, Italian. He goes full here. bore. Yeah. Um, and you know what? It was it was very entertaining to watch. And, you know, that's not something that I could say about a lot of recent Jared Leto performances for me. I mean, I think, you know, 
the little things which he was in earlier this year was was one of those movies where it, he did go over the top but i didn't feel like that was the level that the rest of the movie was pitched on um so if only that know, were the only problem with that film yes uh and the same could be said i think of another actor in that film but anyway um i think uh i i th- I, I had fun with the performance it's it's you know right up there with probably the most i've ever liked jared leto in a movie um he's you not seen dallas buyers club yeah i have seen dallas buyers club one time um i do think he's good again another colorful kind of over-the-top character um i think fits him well um but it has been a, a minute since i've seen that movie i mean he's never he's not ever going to be one of my favorite actors um i don't sure. think he's you know super super polished at least not compared to you know the other people that he is acting alongside in this movie um but i also just feel like there's uh, similar character type actors who can give those sign of commitment performances that just i don't know at this point you just take more seriously i don't know like another way to describe it like i feel like at this point like christian bale can give similar performances to jared leto but he's just a like infinitely better actor than jared leto is like i don't know yeah. other way to, any other way to say it like yeah, but again, here you're not meant to take him seriously, so that's why I think it works. Uh, I mean, yeah. I think, you know, this character is, he's a bumbling fool, right? He's just kind of the the plaything of, sure. um, you know, the the rest of the family. He's kind of a pawn. Yeah, the family um, humor. So, yes, very much so. Because, because, you know, again, because he still has this important role with in terms of ownership of the company. Um, which creates some interesting tension throughout. But yeah, I think they Al don't Pacino do enough with that, a... though. In my opinion, they really don't do enough with that. I know this is like yeah. segueing a little bit into the into plot, maybe. And again, this is sort of what I wanted to get at, maybe in my general impressions, is that they set up a lot of this sort of intra-family conflict, and it's not like they they leave it completely and don't follow up on it. I just feel like it it stages a lot of conflict. And in spite of the movie being two hours and 40 minutes, I don't really actually feel like it follows through on much of it. There is resolution to the conflict, but there is not proper, I don't know, family war happening on the screen. To the extent that I was kind of hoping for, it's just like you have this conversation with Paolo and then you're rolling Paolo under the bus and you're having this argument outside of you know the Gucci estate or whatever between him and... Patricia and Maurizio and then everything goes to hell and like they come back and now you have this conflict between Aldo and Paolo and Maurizio and Patricia and it's like it just feels like there's a lot of like here's the setup here's the resolution get none of like the juice in the middle of it that actually builds the conflict and tension up I guess that was the problem I ultimately felt like I walked away with yeah I mean I I guess I kind of like some of the stuff with again with Lady Gaga like sort of using Paolo a little bit to Mm -hmm. um, go after his father um, to, you know, for leverage against his father because they find some stuff about his taxes. It just happened so quickly. I don't know. That that was the thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, I think that goes with some of the pacing issues that I was talking about. Yeah, totally. um, Maybe they don't budget their time as well as they could, or maybe they just, you know, again, maybe there's just not enough time to, to fit everything maybe in, not. all the different threads that they want. But yeah, I mean, I think maybe the strongest narrative thread is, it does have to do with just, you know, kind of going back to what we were saying earlier, Lady Gaga's character and um, maybe her 
quest for for power. One thing that I I picked up on was um, during there there are several moments in the movie where um, you know they're running the business together, kind of her and Maurizio, and a character makes another character makes a remark that oh well she's not a Gucci right she doesn't have the Gucci name and. There, Lady Gaga, like if you watch her, it's clear that she like wants some sort of reaction from from Maurizio, um, like for him to defend her a little bit more and say, well, hey, I married her. She is a Gucci now, uh, but he never does. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that's a that's a smart way of, you know, introducing gradually introducing tension in their relationship, which, you know, does seem rosy at certain, you know, early on at certain points. Mm-hmm. Um while, while, yeah, again, you know, honing in on that theme of her being power hungry, really everyone being power, everyone is power hungry. I mean, there's, there's really, there's no denying that. I mean, Adam Driver, again, he doesn't start out that way, but once he gets a taste. But Patrizia like, makes him that way. Yes. Once, once he gets a taste, he wants, he wants the whole thing and he's willing to, um, you know, step over anyone in his way, including his own, you know, wife, other family members to, to get what he wants to the detriment of the company though. I mean, that, that is ultimately what, what comes out of this is that a, a lot of money ends up getting spent and it's not, you know, commensurate to the profits that Gucci is, is bringing in. Right. I mean, you know, he ends up sort of lavishing his wealth on all of these, you know, expenses and cars and, you know, homes and, penthouse apartments and all this stuff and it you know it, it catches up with it like gucci's just not it's not bringing it's not bringing in the money anymore you know he's he's a little bit um unwilling to maybe embrace the future of of fashion there's um this whole part with this american designer um that tom ford you know comes yeah uh, with tom ford that that comes into play that you know maybe he hurts himself a little bit there. And obviously Tom Ford does end up, you know, if you know the, the real history of Gucci, you know, Tom Ford did end up being um, one of the, the people behind the whole thing for several years um, at, at the company uh, after the, the Gucci family basically ends up, you know, getting phased out and what happens happens with Patrizia, you know, well, I mean, you look, it's, it's, it's there in history. She hires uh, hires a hit hitman to take out her husband, and um, you know that that's how everything ultimately sort of falls apart. Um, yeah, Tom Ford coming out like yesterday and saying that uh, he really did not like the performances of Jared Leto and um, Al Pacino for completely you know misportraying Aldo and Paolo. But there you have it. I mean. I don't doubt that they are misportrayals of it, of them, yeah. but again, like this is just a choice that the that the movie made, and I think ultimately for me it paid off. So, um, Le- anything- Leto's brilliance as an actor is literally buried under latex prosthetics. Both performers performers are given license to be absolute hams and not of the prosciutto variety. That's what so he saying. does think Leto has brilliance as an actor. Interesting. Um, Somewhere under the latex prosthetics. Kind. He is an Oscar winner, I suppose. Um, Scott, anything else you want to add about this movie? Anything else to add? You know, I think I think I, I kind of have said my piece. I, I do think the film is watchable. I do want to reiterate that. I don't want to come off sounding way too negative 
on this movie, I laughed quite a bit. It was funny. Sometimes I wasn't sure if I was I was laughing with the film or at the film. Maybe a mix of both on certain occasions. Um, but yeah, I, I did feel like there there wasn't enough juice in like plot side of things for me. Sort of like I already mentioned, I don't need to rehash that too much. But yeah, look, this is eventually going to come out on VOD, probably be on some streaming service at some point. It's probably worth a watch. I would say watch it around the holidays, but it probably won't be out by Christmas. So I don't know when you get the chance to see it. It's definitely it's definitely worth a watch. Um, I I, I, de- I definitely think so. I still I still think it's in you know the upper quadrant of movies for this year, even if I do think it falls shorter of even Ridley Scott's other movie this year. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't call yeah, it a must they, see though. Not that you are. Right. Yeah, that's that's probably fair. Uh, and they were talking on the big picture episode about this too. That you know how much do we really think was Ridley Scott's like intentional. Uh, you know, how much intent do we think he put into the, the yeah. level of the performances or did he just kind of say, do do your thing? Like, you know, turn on the camera, and say, do your thing. And the performances that he got were the performances that he got. And he just kind of rolled with that. I think um, there was some of that. I mean, because we know that I mean, Lady Gaga said she ad libbed her, you know, yeah. and almost viral House of Gucci line. So I'm sure other parts of it were ad libbed as well. I have no doubt. And I think a part of that is letting these people define their characters. Yeah, well, whatever the case, I think it it turned out fine. Um, it, it it worked out because I think everyone, again, was pretty much on the same level. Um, sure, you know, Jared Leto maybe leaning into it a little bit far, but in the right direction, in my opinion, leaning leaning far in the right direction. Um, I would with agree his... with in the right direction, but I and I would certainly say it goes too far. <laughs> but yeah, the fair right enough. Direction. All right, Scott, what's your favorite scene or moment from House of Gucci? Oh, man. You know, we haven't talked about Camille Cotine at all. And I just want to give a shout out to that because this whole, like, weird love triangle, it's just what a bizarre 2021 for Camille Cotine, Adam Driver, and Matt Damon to be in this, like, weird meta love triangle of films. Um, None of which turn out particularly well for Adam Driver. And I was wondering, you know, he he's dead in, in all scenarios, so that's a tough one for him. But here we are. Favorite star, anyway. Favorite scene. I guess that was the last thing I wanted to say about the movie. Now that I okay. had time to think about it, um, my favorite scene or moment. Gosh, I do like some of those earlier scenes. I think you know, you know almost even between Maurizio and Patrizia. I think that they do have a really I mean, chemistry almost isn't the right word for it, although I do think they have good chemistry, but they have like a good dynamic, a good way to play off each other, Lady Gaga and Adam Driver. And I think some of these scenes earlier on, uh, there's one, I don't know if it's necessarily my favorite, but there's one in the kitchen number when Al calls, you know, them when they're newly married or whatever for the first time. And Lady Gaga's like so excited, right? Like she wants to be in this family. Like she kind of married him because he wanted to be a Gucci. And so... She's like being like, yeah, we'll come to your birthday party. And Adam Driver's like, no, please not. I think it's on the phone and she's like basically forcing him into it. Um, I think it just speaks to the strength of the two performances, um, which aren't out of place with the rest of the performance in the movie. But again, are the characters that I think you can you can most sort of like latch onto and relate to as human beings. Yeah, um, 
I'm struggling to think. I mean, I, the one person I didn't talk really about that I did really enjoy his performance was Al Pacino. Like, I, I do think um, he he gives a he gives a strong performance. And yes, it is over the top, but it's not like it's not leaning into all the Al Pacino like you know over the top tropes that he is known for bringing. Um, so I liked a lot of the early you know mid to middle section where. He is more heavily involved where he's kind of playing the good guy. Right. And we end up in this sort of, um, yeah, you know, that, that I'll, I'll, I'll highlight that scene, I guess, where, uh, Jared Leto basically, you know, uh, they've teamed up Patricia and Mauricio have teamed up with, with, uh, with Al Pacino's character with Aldo. So Jared Leto kind of tries to like pull the, the double cross and go to, to Rodolfo to Jeremy Irons character and say, Hey, they took your son. Uh, so now, you know, you're going to take his. Yeah. Um, and it just goes terribly for him. You know, he's presenting the designs and Jeremy Irons is kind of leading him along. Um, and eventually just, you know, Guts ri him. rips the, the rug out from under his, his feet um, and says, no, actually, I think you're as big of an idiot as your father does. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun scene. Jeremy Irons gets, you know, to, to lay down the law and Jared Leto gets to do some of his best sort of um, over the top acting ending with him uh, peeing on what was it? It was a, it's, it's like a, a table, scarf. like a table. It's a scarf. Scarf. It, yeah. It's a scarf. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, you know, uh, Jeremy Irons took a lot of pleasure in. So um, a nice, a nice scene that I think sort of encapsulates the, soapy vibe of the movie that's fair all right let's put a score on it what do you give house of gucci a score that i i think the performances in this cast deserve 6.9 nice uh 7.6 for me i did enjoy the movie i found it entertaining um you know not as not as good or as meaningful certainly as the last duel um but it was better than I was expecting, uh, I guess. It, well, the the movie gave gave me what I wanted. Again, from the from the trailers, I kind of felt like it could go either way sure. um, with how how the tone is going to be, and they went in the right direction for me. So I I was pleasantly surprised that um, it it turned out this way, and that Ridley Scott was not afraid to make a big Hollywood Oscar buzzy movie that um, you know dials it up so much. So. Uh, Seven point six for me. I just I'm All not right, sure so. how buzzy it's going to end up being, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, wh which one? One of them will will certainly probably be in the conversation. And uh, you know, we obviously think the last duel is the better film, but is House of Gucci? You know, is the subject matter there more in the Oscar voters' purview? Um, I I don't know. I mean, it does seem like maybe this is the one that they're making a harder slightly harder play for especially now that you know the last duel came out and was a huge flop at the box office this um, is a pretty big flop too but I yeah know. i was gonna say i don't really know what the numbers were for 20 for million Gucci, for the but... five-day weekend and can't have more than doubled it yeah pretty well much. again i think just because of the subject matter this probably is the one that they would want to want to push more but i would say you know both of the films are of good quality I would be surprised if one of them isn't in the Oscar race or at least in the performances um, race. I don't know if either movie will be able to get itself into the best picture conversation, but I definitely think 
you know, you could perform point to performances in both movies probably that um, could potentially receive some recognition in the yeah. form of a nomination. But only time will tell. Uh, all right, Scott, that'll do it for our review of House of Gucci. Um, when we come back, we have just a couple of news items to get to, uh, including some some casting news and maybe a little bit of a beef between uh, a director and actor um, that we got some information about uh, today that um, maybe will be fun to talk about. We'll see. Uh, but stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, just a couple of news items uh, to hit before we conclude for today. And you wanted to to shout out this story that came out today um, that was kind of taking over film Twitter a little bit. There was some conversation going on about it. Um, there was some discourse, but as, one, as we say. Adam McKay and Will Ferrell are obviously a director and actor combo who work together. And producer partners. Several... They, they own their production company right. together. Yeah. Several times in the past when Adam McKay was still doing his comedies and didn't wrongfully think that he was a serious filmmaker, um, he uh, he was, you know, working with Will Ferrell often. And we got some information about maybe why he is no longer working with Will Ferrell. And there seems to have been quite a rift between the two of them that Adam McKay has now shed some light on in a very particular way that I think maybe you have some thoughts about. Yeah, I mean, you're teasing it well there. Basically, I think, you know, their production company, which I can't remember the name of, isn't frankly that important. Um, basically, you know, was making a lot of, you know, producing a lot of comedies that sometimes Will Ferrell would star in, but sometimes they would just be producing in the background and making happen as production companies will do, right? I mean, that's not unusual, um, obviously. But a few years back, they sort of split and went separate ways. I think back in 2019, because I think Adam McKay was taking himself more seriously. And, there's, and, and to be fair, this is not a bad thing, but he wanted to start producing more stuff. He has a production deal with HBO, wants to produce a lot of shows. Um, I mean, he's a producer on one of the most successful shows on HBO right now. That's Succession. Um, incredible show. Watch Succession if you're not watching Succession. Um, but getting a little bit more into the details now with this interview that he's doing on his promo, presumably for his promo tour for don't look up as the hype sort of builds for his his next film that's coming out on Netflix later, you know, at the end of the year, like literally New Year's Eve Christmas, or something like that. Yeah. yeah, Christmas. Um he shed a little bit more light on why he and Will Farrell, who had a prolific, you know, comedy partnership in the mid to late knots in the early two thousands. And part of that was that you know, again, Adam McKay's ambitions were a little bit different. He wanted to produce more stuff. Will Ferrell, you know, I think he wanted to be a little bit more of a hands-on producer rather than like an executive higher level producer like Adam McKay wanted to be while he was producing more stuff. And the final nail in the coffin, according to Adam McKay, was when he was trying to get um, his, I think, to be released HBO miniseries made where he'd cast Will Ferrell as this real life uh, media executive, who it is not super important, but essentially the... The other, you know, the producers at HBO, the people who are really greenlighting the show and making it happen, just could not see Will Ferrell um, playing that particular person. Didn't look like him, didn't sound like him, um, didn't have the mannerisms of him, and asked Adam McKay 
to recast the role because they were going for something that was more um, visually connective to the source material, if you will. And Adam McKay decides to go behind Will Ferrell's back, not tell him that he's recasting the role, and proceeds to cast one of Will Ferrell's like closest acting partners over the last like decade, decade and a half, it seems like John C. Riley for the same role and doesn't tell him. And John C. Riley is the one who breaks the news to Will Ferrell. And I can only assume that like, I don't know, like Adam McKay is, is, is like sharing this to be like, Oh, it's a Mia culpa, but there's just like this, like really weird under like backhanded nature of a lot of this stuff. And like, it just feels like he's trying to be like, Will Ferrell's just being so unreasonable and won't come to the table um, and sort of like bury the hatchet with me. And he just sounds like an absolute clown. Like he's talking about at the end of this interview about how, you know, it's like, it was my fault. I shouldn't have done that. I should have handled, you know, took taken care of my business and told Will that, you know, I, I needed to recast the role and, and be on good terms with him. But now, you know, Will won't return my email emails. And I, you know, sent him a message the other day where I, you know, I apologized and said, you know, it's been a few years. Can we, can we, you know, put this to bed, you know, there are things that, that you've done, like slights that you've made against me that, you know, you never, I, you know, you never apologized for. And I'm just like, bro, like, what are you doing? Your ego is so big that, you know, you messed up so badly with this casting situation with a good friend and producing partner of yours that you just got to jab him back in the email. You're like asking for him to like <laughs> the table about, you say this in an interview, presumably to like, like uh, he's just so out of touch it's like he's such a clown to think this is a smart idea like you think he's gonna like email you back now that you've like out like talked about this and in like an interview that is you know on i think it was an indie wire interview that he was talking about it and like what is he thinking like what a clown i mean i think he just overestimates how much people are actually even talking about this or care about it in the first place right like yeah I don't hear any conversations going on about, oh, why aren't Adam McKay and Will Ferrell working together anymore? You know, did something happen there? Yeah. And it's just like, it's a bizarre decision to bring this whole thing into the limelight under the guise of, I'm going to be apologizing. Like, I'm going to be, you know, but he's not really apologizing. And then not really doing that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's taking, yeah, I mean, he's taking responsibility for the mistake he made, but he's not apologizing for it. <laughs> all I will say is, this behavior from Adam McKay does seem to mirror the qualities of his last film and what I perceive to be the, the tone of his upcoming film. But again, we're only basing that on a trailer. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think they go, seem to go hand in hand. I think he it seems to be someone who thinks a lot of himself, who um, doesn't think a lot of the rest of us. Um, and, yeah, you know, that's, that's coming mainly from Vice. I know that is. Yes, but uh, again, I, yeah. I don't look up. Just my perception of it is um, that it looks like it's going to be very heavy handed. Um, and I think films that are that way um, oftentimes, you know, are again, they're, that's a condescending thing to to do to audiences is to assume that they can't you know, figure out what is going on here um, unless it is, you know, extremely broad or, or at, mm -hmm. you know, the most, most basic level, or, you know, in the case of Dick, in the case of vice, you know, Dick Cheney bad was basically the entire, was the message of that movie, Dick Cheney bad. Um, yeah. And I, I just find I, you say that it's condescending and it is, it certainly is condescending. 
and I think I'll have a, a clear assessment of this when I watch Don't Look Up and we'll see how I feel about the script and the direction from Adam McKay in particular as it relates to this conversation. I think Adam McKay just might not be able to inject any nuance whatsoever in to his screenwriting and yeah. his storytelling. It's, it's just going to be a, a skill I mean, that he has. Again, he's he he gets his he got his name making broad comedies, right? Some of which are good, are very good. I mean, the yeah. the Anchorman's and all that of the world are very sure. funny movies. Um, but he is now trying to apply that it to you know again serious issue based films and you which know the big for short complicated like the Big Short. But right, that's that is the point that I have always made is that I think. The big short is something where, no, your average person does not understand what credit default swaps are. Yeah. And so, yes, we need Margot Robbie yeah. in a bubble bath explaining it to us. Um, there's I don't have a problem with that. But the problem is, you know, he wins an Oscar. He and Charles Randolph won an Oscar for writing this movie. And now he thinks, oh, I've I've done it. I've cracked the way to make these, you know, issue issue based movies. I'm going to do all of this really stylish. I'm talk about why Republicans are bad now. Very. Nuanced, yeah, I'm going to have. Issue them talking in Shakespeare to each other. We're going to roll the credits in the middle of the movie. Um, we're going to do all this stupid stuff. Um, but yeah, the subject matter of vice just doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't have any of the complexity really of, um, of the big short, or if there is any complexity to it whatsoever, he's not really interested in, in introducing that into the movie. He, he paints you one very specific portrait of, um, Dick Cheney, and that is him as you know the most evil person you could imagine, and just says, "Look at how evil he is. Look at how bad he is." Like that's the whole movie. Um, but anyway, enough about that. Lord knows we have spent way too much airtime on that movie in the past 168 episodes of this podcast. But Scott, a movie that we both have to look forward to is George Miller's Furiosa. Um, sure origin story prequel um to the fury road um his last mad max movie um of course we know we've known for some time now that furiosa is going to be played by anya taylor joy in this uh you know prequel we also know that chris hemsworth is going to be in this film um and recently the movie was delayed i believe to 2023 or 2024 i don't know i i don't want to speak out of turn i think it might be 2024 I think it might be too. It's definitely not coming out next year. And I, I think it might be 2024 as well. But um, another bit of casting news has been, well, the, a, an alteration has been made to the cast. Yaya Abdul-Mateen II was going to play a, a lead role in the movie as well, um, or a major supporting role. I guess we don't really know what the nature of the role was going to be. But he was cast in the movie. However, due to, to scheduling conflicts, um, he has had to pull out of the movie. Um and in his place, um, probably one of the most random bits of substitute casting that I've seen in a long time. Yeah. Tom Burke. Um, N- noted you know, black actor, Suven- Tom Burke. Yeah, of the Souvenir and uh, Mank fame, I guess. Most recently, he was uh, Orson Welles in, in Mank. Prior to that, he got a lot of buzz for his performance in Souvenir Part One. I don't know if he's in the Souvenir Part Two or not, but um, I don't think he is. Joanna Hogg's two films, the second one having come out this year, but um, yeah, definitely not as well known as yeah, yeah, Abdul Mateen the second is starting to to become, and yeah, just just a lot of weird aspects to the you know this being the the substitute person that they 
that they chose obviously the racial thing you know being being part of that but um who knows how much that was crucial to the identity of this character I mean, we don't we don't even really know what the the character is or yeah. is going to be i don't think um but just something i wanted to highlight because again it is a movie that you know we have already been talking about quite a bit which we mm-hmm. will continue to be talking about i'm sure over the next two years um before it actually comes out uh, who knows if we'll still be doing years. the podcast for three years um, yeah who, who knows but um Tom Burke is going to be in the movie now again. Yeah, I've only I think I've only seen him in Bank. I can't think of anything else that I've really seen him in. Um, I thought he was fine in Mank. He didn't have a ton to do as Orson Welles. Um, as mm-hmm. I've said, I will always prefer Christian McKay as Orson Welles and uh, me and Orson Welles, the, that very underrated film. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean. I'm willing to to give it a shot. I mean, th- there's nothing that could really kill my buzz for this movie at this point with, you know, with George Miller directing, with Anya being, you know, playing Furiosa. Um, Ansel Elgort is cast. <laughs> Honestly, it w- wouldn't surprise me. He does seem to be the, the actor who, like, of late, you know, like something like West Side Story or The Goldfinch, which otherwise I'm like, oh, yes, let's go. I'm super on board with the whole idea of this. Again, The Goldfinch was one of my favorite books. And then all of a sudden it's Ansel Elgort. And I'm like, well, crap. Um, but I don't even think that would. No, I wouldn't. That would mess either. things up at this point. Although, can you um, imagine Annie Taylor? I mean, not to presume that Annie Taylor will be, will be making out with anyone in this movie, but just Ansel. I mean, that, what a what a horrible mental image. That would finally send me over the edge. That's much worse than her and. Malcolm McRae or whatever her current boyfriend's name is, but um, yeah. but yeah, I don't I don't know how much Ansel Elgort is going to be working past twenty twenty one, but we'll see. Um, uh, we'll see if he uh, wins an Oscar for West Side Story. Maybe he'll get he'll get some. Don't work. don't even speak that into <laughs> possibility of existence. Um, oh my lord! All right, Scott, I think that'll just about do it um, for this episode of the podcast. Before we go, do you want to give a minute or two to the film that you saw tonight? Just maybe a quick review. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I I got to see The Rescue, which is the brand new documentary film from uh, the filmmakers who made Free Solo a few years back, which won the Academy Award for uh, Best Documentary Feature that year. It is Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Shai Versali. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Vasar Haliai. I'm not sure. I apologize for that. But... Yeah, I got to see a sort of advanced screening. You know, I, I realized this, like, I think after the film is that I thought that I had missed the chance to see it this past summer. But there's when it was like in theater in one theater here in New York for one week. Uh, that was a different film called The Rescue, which is a Chinese uh, film, which I discovered after the film. So I'm really glad that I did not end up going to see that movie because I've been very confused when the film started. I probably would have walked out um which is i don't know tough luck but uh i did get to see this film the, the way that i realized this guy is they said they finished the film in september and i was like well then i could not have missed it over the summer <laughs> if they finished yeah. it two months ago um so yeah that's that's how i came about that that little nugget of information but yeah really remarkable documentary one thing that struck me i think almost immediately at the the film it, it's so different than any of the other features that they've done i mean they've only done two other Two other documentaries together, Free Solo being obviously their most famous, but they did another uh, climbing-related documentary movie, which is 
what Jimmy Chin, I mean, he grew up and he sort of became famous for this extreme sports climbing himself and then, you know, making documentaries out of that and then partnered up with his, you know, now real life partner um, and wife, uh, filmmaking partner as well. Yeah, it's it's so different because so much of what is incredible about Free Solo is just the real time live footage, essentially, that you get of Alex Honnold doing one of the most psychotic things you can even imagine uh, a human being doing. And it is this real testament to personal overcoming of even if it's obstacles that he has decided to place in front of him, but these obstacles that he wants to wants to summit, you know, the, the literal mountain he wants to summit in front of him. And in so many ways, yes, the extreme sports nature and roots of these filmmakers is still present in the rescue. It is, you know, if you really boil it down to its nuts and bolts, a huge part of it is that it's a film about cave diving. Um, so you still have the extreme sports element, but the makeup of the film besides that is so different because they don't have any live, like any real primary footage they shot themselves. Uh, obviously, because what's happening, you know, is a real life cave rescue of this, you know, youth, you know, like boys soccer team that got stuck in a series of caves in Thailand in 2018. I mean, I remember this happened happening during the World Cup in 2018. I remember kind of flashing. And the, the sort of the connective relevance of of those two events is uh, the soccer team buried in a cave in China and not China, I'm sorry, Thailand. But meanwhile, you have, you know, France winning the World Cup you know, sort of a couple of days apart from each other. So what they're able to string together with the footage that they're able to get a hold of from the, you know, international volunteer divers that went to Thailand to help rescue these this soccer team. And from the Thai Navy SEALs, the Thai government, it is really remarkable. I mean, footage that had never been re seen before, re never released before by the Thai government. Um, there's a lot of it. You know, not all of it is is so it makes for for a good film. And so the the parts that you do see are very thoughtful and very calculated. And it is sort of stitched together with these. They they spoke with the divers, and they preferred to call them demonstrations, not reenactments. Uh, but demonstrations um and it's just i just found it to be really powerful in a way that free solo what it couldn't and wasn't able to capture because i think as overwhelming as free solo can be in its sort of just you know awesomeness and in, in the true sense of just like being awed by what you're watching this is like this has real stakes beyond just the individual right like this is a 13 kids trapped in a cave for set eight, 16 to 18 days because it took several days for them to be um, retrieved out of the cave once the rescue actually started. And the fact that you get, you know, these the, these conversations that you have with the divers who are who are rescuing these children, um, the Navy SEAL, you know, the, the Thai Navy SEALs who are involved. And then, you know, again, the actual footage that they, that they do have from the GoPro cameras that these divers and these Navy SEALs were wearing. It's really just emotionally overwhelming to understand the sacrifices that people were making and sort of like the ethical questions that they had to ask themselves. Like, is it worth risking these hundreds of people's lives going into these caves, right? Like, yes, the divers, the handful of divers, but also the literal hundreds of people who were in the cave systems helping them retrieve the kids. I mean, they also, their lives were also at risk during this operation. And 
and weighing like what the what those 13 lives in the caves were worth in terms of additional risk to retrieve um those people and i think it's not a question that it, that i think it dives into maybe enough and but it dives into it and it presents it in a way that's still i think emotionally resonant i almost would have liked for them to go even deeper into that side of things but yeah really emotionally overwhelming I, this year i've kind of been i don't think i've cried in too many movies this year and i'm someone who i'm not an easy crier i won't say that i'm you know i easily cry in movies but it's not too hard to get me emotional um but i haven't really been super emotional a lot of films this year i think maybe just normal people took it out of me too much last year probably um but this one got me this one got me several times um and i think it's just asking a lot of really you know questions that are there's no net there's not necessarily a right answer to but it, this was the questions that these people faced and these were the answers they came up with and what they did um in the in the q a afterwards they were talking about how the media coverage of the real life event in 2018 didn't really do the the whole affair justice be, just because of how private the nature of the rescue itself is it, it's in a cave you can't obviously you can't have news coverage of from above of this cave rescue and whatnot um compared to the grueling circumstances and the and the real difficulty of what was happening and the funny thing is is that I'm not sure that the documentary does it either, uh, which is a crazy thing to say. I mean, again, they are shedding a lot more light on it. It, it is they they through words at the very least, they make it very clear how difficult things were. And in the moments where you get this real footage, I think it's quite emotional. Um, but then when you just sort of sit and I was sitting in the theater afterwards as the you know, the Q&A was about to start and just thinking about like, man, these these demonstrations they don't convey how difficult the diving was like this is calm water clear camera footage i mean these guys when they're talking about the movie it is pitch black they can't see in front of them the current this like riptide current from the monsoon that was happening that caused the whole cave to flood to begin with is pushing against them and they're having to dive deeper like like literally kilometers into this cave system to get people out and then they're dragging them out of the cave um you know, diving like like diving and dragging them out. It's, I mean, it's it's unfathomable. I think to really feel understand how difficult that was, um, and the attempt to sort of un uncover that, I think is is worthy, even if it's not perfect, um, and a, a really powerful film. Yeah, I really want to see this as well. I um, I'm hoping that they'll put it on Disney Plus fairly soon because it's a Nat Geo. Um, yeah. It production will. It just will like free solo was um so that'll probably be my best chance to see it when it does come out on there but yeah i'm also a fan of free solo i was very impressed with that movie um not just in its portrayal of the actual el cap climb but also the way that it looked at alex honnold's interpersonal life and contrasting that with um you know this incredible death defying mm -hmm. thing he wants to do um it does a little bit of that like it starts to do that in the mm -hmm. rescue it doesn't follow through with it completely. I would have liked them to have gotten more into that, like the psychology, which is kind of what you're talking about, I think, of these people who are diving into you know, caves where a, a normal human being would be very afraid for their lives, kind of like you should be when you're free solo climbing El Capitan. But um, yeah, 
they it sort of does that in the first act and it doesn't and instead of revisiting that and following up on it i think it, it sort of asks these like big moral ethical questions um which i liked in its own right as well sure yeah and i have another friend who's also really high on this movie as well so want to check it out as soon as i can again don't know when that will be but i definitely definitely intend to when i can um it feels like the kind of film maybe not immediately but like aperture would have this is almost yeah, certainly I'm pretty sure they had for, free, for best document they had yeah they had free solo um back in the day for sure but um yeah I'll, I'll have to to keep my eyes peeled for that for sure like i i do agree with you that it does seem like a movie that, that they would have but um all right scott uh where can our listeners find you on social media at shelton 2013 on letterboxd and I am at Scarbyden on Letterboxd and Twitter as well. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support us, uh, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Uh, even if you can't support us over there, though, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things uh, that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you will be back for our next episode of the podcast on which we will be reviewing one of the best picture front runners for 2021, Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road. Okay.